of Nahum, chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heads of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink away, shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush! was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. Put, and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees, With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortars. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not, has not come your unceasing evil. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we we are the clay. And we need your help, Father, to see our role in this plan of yours. Even more than that, God, we need your help to see your role in this plan of yours. 
You are good. You cannot be or do evil. And everything you do is just. Help us to see that and celebrate that as we come into this text today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us understand and live out the truths that we're about to engage in. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a passage. Woof. Y'all might have seen the picture pop up there before I started reading. Whoops. Look at this, man. If, If I could zoom in there, you'd see a bunch of smiling, happy faces. This is Victory in Europe Day. V.E. Day, May 8th, 1945. This is the same day in London. Ticker tape parade. Dancing, singing, laughing, celebrating. Why? Victory. And not just victory, mind you. Victory over an atrocious, horrible, evil regime that had killed millions of people to put forth their own agenda, to purge the earth of the scourge of the impure people, the Nazis had said. A few months later, September 2nd, we celebrate, they celebrated VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day. Anybody know what preceded Victory in Japan Day? Let me tell you. After Okinawa fell to U.S. forces on June 22, 1945, an invasion of the Japanese home islands was set to begin. But before the invasion was to take place, the most destructive war in history came to a shattering and rapid end. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the first atomic bomb over Hiroshima, ultimately killing as many as 140,000 people. Two days later... The Soviet Union declared war on Japan. Then, on August 9th, the United States dropped a second atomic bomb over Nagasaki, ultimately killing approximately 70,000 people. And then we celebrate. Rightly so. This is not a message about America, by the way. The decision to drop those two bombs, which was the most destructive force ever shown in a war, came from this. This is a quote leading up to the decision to drop those two bombs. It was too much death to contemplate. Talking about the fighting, the war. Too much savagery and suffering. And in August 1945, listen to this statement, no one was counting. For those who had seen the face of battle and had been in the camps and under the bombs and had lived, there was, after these bombs dropped, a sense of immense relief. America has been demonized for what happened in Japan and those two bombs but the evil had to end. Were we completely righteous? No. 
but people weren't counting anymore. There was too much death, too much suffering, and it had to end. And the way it ended was vicious. And people celebrated when it ended. How do we process as Christians today, 21st century America, we're so refined and so cultured, we're so much smarter than previous generations. I say tongue in cheek. How do we process evil? What is evil? Well, let me tell you, we know clearly what God thinks of evil. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. Now, we've been working through Nahum, this not long book. But, man, we've seen a lot of stuff. We've seen a lot of things that make us go, woo-wee. Wow, that's harsh. And today, this passage is harsh. And what I want you to take into account as we move into this, this is what God does to evil. We start in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. So we start this last chapter of this prophetic vision. And something I haven't said here, and just, just something so you know, these three chapters are three poems. If you look in your Bible, a lot of them are structured like with the really indented uh, margins. Th- these are poems that this prophetic vision was, was proclaimed forth with. This last chapter, this last poem, this burden of Nahum's regarding the fall, the coming fall of Nineveh which was the capital city of Assyria, which was the mightiest empire on the face of the earth at the time. And we saw in the first chapter the description of God. God described himself first, and he described himself as jealous, avenging, and wrathful. But we also saw that he is slow to anger, great in power, not clearing the guilty, and that he is good and a stronghold, knowing who it is that takes refuge in him, and conversely, knowing those who don't take refuge in him. And it is this God who is releasing his people, the nation of Judah, after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, he's releasing the nation of Judah, what's left of his people, releasing them from their yoke of oppression from the Ninevites, the Assyrians. And that was chapter 1. Then in the second chapter, we saw vivid details of what this attack upon the Ninevites was going to look like. Soldiers in red with shields of red, metal chariots, cypress spears, siege towers set up. And then the river, which normally protected Nineveh, opens up and exposes them at the river gate, giving access to the city, the ladies, and the plunder, the chapter said. And God said that He was going into the lion's den and removing the lion to bludgeon and to kill that lion, leaving all the prey that had been collected there in that den to be seized by the invaders. I am against you, God says at the end of that chapter, and I will perform these things through this mighty invading army. Why though? Why? Well, we saw in the first two chapters that Assyria, basically, we could describe it as they had touched the apple of God's eye when they came upon his people, the Israelites. And that's the main reason given up till now. But here in this final chapter, in this last poem, God is going to give more reasons why this calamity is coming upon the Ninevites. 
And here in this first verse, we see the first indictment, the first explanation of the coming calamity with three trends of Assyrian actions over the years. They're the bloody city, lies, they're full of lies, and they're predators. They take prey, plunder. Remember last, last week with the monkey stick line thing? The Ninevites had been the monkey, and this is the stick they used to provoke God. And they reap the consequences. They're going to reap the consequences of it. This monkey was stupid and hit the lion, and the consequences are shown here. Assyria has been stupid and has, over their conquests over a long period of time, committed atrocities that God cannot go without punishing. And please remember this, God isn't randomly being mean to some poor, innocent, sweet people. He's punishing Nineveh, pronouncing woe on them because they are the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder and prey. This woe, this pronouncement of coming doom is given because the ways and the reputation of the, of the Assyrians was ultra-violent. They told lies to get their way. They stole things from others and they considered people as prey. Now let me ask you, is that okay? Is that evil? Well, obviously, it's harming other people. That's evil. But all of these things are in direct violation to the will and words of God. They're sin. Those are things that God said not to do. And these very things characterize the Ninevites, the Assyrians. So, God is pouring out His wrath upon these sons of disobedience. And then next, in verses 2 and 3, we see what that wrath looks like. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. So the narrative shifts from what Nineveh had done to what's going to be done to Nineveh. We hear the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and the bounding chariot. We see horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear. And we see, listen, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses. Have you ever seen the pictures of the Holocaust that I wouldn't share here this morning? Dead bodies heaped up, loaded into boxcars, some of them. And created away. Heaps of bodies. That's evil. But what's happening here is that evil is being meted out unto the Ninevites. And now it's their bodies, their corpses that are heaped up. Dead bodies without end. To the point that those charging through the city stumble over the bodies. Remember when there was no end of the prey for Nineveh? Well now there's no end to the prey of the attackers of Nineveh. These horses and chariots are the invading armies of Babylon and the Medes. So much prey that now there's no end of Ninevite corpses. Everywhere you look, there's dead bodies. Dead bodies without end to the point that all moving around are stumbling over the bodies. Again, awfully vivid, awfully descriptive, and it's horrific. And this is the wrath of God against evil. 
We see more reasons as to why in verse 4. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Here's the second reason for the hammer falling. The countless whorings of the prostitute. God is calling this queen of Assyria's cities, Nineveh, a prostitute. And he, said, and he says that this wrath is falling due to the countless whorings of that prostitute. That's some strong language. And without getting too deeply descriptive of prostitutes and whorings, why is God using this analogy for this reasoning for wrath? Commentator Kenneth Barker gives this insight. Nineveh's political leadership behaved as a prostitute, enticing poorer and weaker nations with its wealth and charms, as a harlot dispenses her favors for hire. So Nineveh, like a scheming prostitute, has cunningly sold her military aid to other countries. The weaker nations fell victim to the allure of Assyria's wealth and power. They looked to Assyria for protection and material wealth, but they soon learned that, like the prostitute, the promises of Assyria only led to destruction. Nineveh sacrificed any semblance of morality for personal interest. End of quote. So Nineveh had wooed outsiders, offering them help, aid, military assistance, then taking advantage of those who came to them for help, subjugating them and pillaging them and enslaving them. And they've done this countless times, not just once or twice. It was their manner, their way. And small nations, those vulnerable and needy, would be enticed by this mighty military machine and would go to them to hire them and pledge themselves to them, thus the prostitute picture. And it would seem so appealing, so attractive... And then it turned disarming and deadly for them. And God says, that's evil. So look at verses 5 to 7 for an eye-opening description of what God is going to do to this whore. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Wow. My goodness. To say the least, this is pretty vivid. The Lord of hosts... He had referred to himself there in verse 5. The God of angel armies, the Lord Sabaoth, declares that he is against this prostitute. And he says he will, quote, lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Wow. In the motif of prostitution... God says he'll expose the Ninevites, lifting up their skirts over their face, and that means exactly what it says, and with that leading to exposing them and shaming them before the nations. It's a picture of embarrassment, humiliation, degradation. No longer on their high horse, they are now red-faced and deflated. Nations and kingdoms looking on in laughter and scorn at the once enticing whore. That's definitely not all. God says, then, I will throw filth at you 
and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. It goes from bad to worse, it seems. He exposes and embarrasses them. Then he throws filth at them. What's filth? Waste. Could be garbage, could be human waste, could be animal waste. Think waste. All being said, it's nasty. It's not something you want flung at you. Nineveh goes from being beautiful and attractive to being literally here an abomination. Those once attracted to her are now repulsed by her. This filth throwing that God is doing makes Nineveh contemptuous and a spectacle, not because of its might, but because of its debasement. God is showing his distaste for them and their evil. Now, can you tell how much God hates evil from this tone? He wants to make sure that all share his disgust. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. He threw waste at them. They're wasted. See the word play there? Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Those looking on, the other nations, those who hated and those who loved Nineveh both will end up saying she's wasted. Nineveh is not just destroyed. It is now a byword for the nations. No one, listen, no one will look upon her anymore with charm and beauty and be attracted to her. All who see Nineveh will shrink from Nineveh, revolted by her desecrated state. Think of looking at something that disgusts you. We had a freezer mess up. Actually, just got unplugged. And it had meat in it. And we kept smelling something. We kept, uh, I went to the freezer and I lifted up that lid. Whoa! Whoa! Think that here. When people look at Nineveh, it's like, oh, oh, oh! She's wasted! All who see Nineveh, their stomach churning, their head turning type of disgust, with the turned up skirts, the revealed nakedness, the filth flung upon her, and the contempt heaped on her head, look on and see the spectacle that she has become. And they turn their heads in disgust, saying, she's wasted, she's desolate. And then it says, there is no one to grieve for her. Nobody outside of Nineveh is sad about this destruction. Nobody. Let me say this quickly. When God finally does away with evil, nobody will be there to mourn the loss of evil. Where can anyone find comforters or mourners for this destruction? Those last two questions are rhetorical. No one will grieve. No one will mourn. Now keep that in mind. That's how evil this evil is. Nobody looks on and goes, Oh, poor Nineveh. Nobody! Now verses 8 and 9 show us the third of the set of accusations that led to Nineveh's devastation. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Now what's going on here? We see this third and final reason for the harsh destruction that's coming upon Nineveh, and that reason is pride. Nineveh, the Assyrians, thought they were better than everyone else, including Thebes. Thebes is the capital of Egypt. 
And Thebes had fallen some years earlier before Nahum's prophecy around 663 B.C. It's noted in all the history books. And who had performed this famous sack of Thebes? Oh, it was these very Assyrians. They had battled in Egypt for some 40 plus years, taking land little by little, ultimately ending the Egyptian dynasty and making Assyria the clear masters of the earth at the time. And God asks them if they think they're better than Thebes. You destroyed Thebes. What makes you think that no one can or will destroy you? Anybody ever date back in the day and like somebody cheated with you? On their boyfriend or girlfriend? The old saying is, if they cheat with you, they will cheat on you. Tuck that away, kids. But see, we, 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 we think, not me. Yeah, she cheated with me because, I mean, look at me. I'd cheat with me too if I was her. Because, I mean, I'm all that. And we look at the other person like, yeah, I could see why they wouldn't want to be with them. So yeah, it makes sense that they cheat with me. It's arrogance. We think, it, it would never happen to me. She wouldn't cheat on me. It's a high view of oneself that leads to looking down on everyone else. It's pride. It's arrogance. If you overtake others, Assyria, Nineveh, you too can and will be overtaken. And the description of Thebes, how much it mirrors Nineveh is amazing. It's aquatic defenses. Are you better than Thebes that sit by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea and water, her wall? Turns out that Thebes was protected by a river too, just like Nineveh was. And how much good did that river or that water do for Thebes? So Nineveh, boasting in your water walls, what makes you think that you and yours will be any different? Listen, this is what happens. Pride blinds us. And it blinded Nineveh. And Nineveh thought, it was, you, you, you can't get to us. We're better, than, we're better than everybody. And listen to me. God hates pride. The original sin was not in the Garden of Eden. The original sin was an angel who said, I will exalt myself above the Most High. They will worship me like they worship Him because I'm all that. And God said, you're cast down. Now you're a snake working your way through the garden that I created. And your end is sure because you were arrogant. You were prideful. God hates pride. And Nineveh had become proud. We destroyed Thebes. And then God says, Thebes even had allies. Other armies to help support it. Cush was her strength. Think Ethiopia when you think Cush. Egypt too, and that without limit, Put and the Libyans were her helpers. All of her neighboring countries were helping Thebes, was helping Egypt, and what good did it do them? Well, Assyria too had all these allies who had pledged to help them and support them in case anyone thought of coming after them, which who would because we're too strong for that. Refer back to the whorings and the prostitute earlier. But Nineveh's trust in the help of men and horses and chariots is misplaced. Thebes had allies, powerful allies, and it still fell. Nineveh would mirror that fall, river and allies and all. And their pride blinded them to that reality. And God would grind that pride into a fine, into a fine dust. 
And that grinding would look just like Thebes's grinding had looked. Verse 10, she, yet she, Thebes, became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men cast lots, uh, for her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. This is what happened to Thebes. It's a picture of total defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. Thebes had been exiled, sent away into captivity by Assyria, no less. The people of Thebes were not their own anymore. They did not belong to themselves. They were slaves of others. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. That's what Assyria did in Thebes. There's a terrible image, right? And that atrocity is being portrayed as turned back on the heads of Assyrian infants in this retribution. It will happen to your infants too, Nineveh. What makes you think it won't? For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. The honored men, the great men, the exalted ones, held in high regard and looked upon as signets of the strength of Thebes, were chained and played poker for. Cast lots. Assyrians had inspected these great men of Thebes and debased them by making property of them. I'll take those too. They look good and strong. They had become possessions instead of possessors. And God said the same will happen to those of Nineveh. They are no better, no greater, no more special than the arrogant of Thebes who thought it would never happen to them either. Be careful, America. As Assyrians laughed, as Assyrians dashed infants and bought and sold the people of Thebes, so others would do to Nineveh. No amount of might or pride would save them. No, those are actually the things, their might and their pride, those are the things that would actually lead to their downfall. They had not learned from others, they had not entertained a thought that what they did to others could be done to them. And they would rue that into destruction and captivity. Now God gives other pictures of how the downfall of Nineveh would mirror that of Thebes, moving from strength to weakness, verses 11 to 13. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. So when Nahum announced this prophecy, Nineveh sat secure and confident in their seemingly impregnable city. Imagine hearing this if you're in Nineveh. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. Who, us? No way. We're undefeated and undefeatable. Well, there was that one little incident in Jerusalem, but nobody talks about that. Just 185,000 guys died, but we just leave them alone. They're fine. But we're undefeated and undefeatable. But, God says, you'll be like a drunk man. You'll try to hide from the danger coming upon you. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. You're ripe for the picking. First ripe figs literally fell off the tree if the tree was shaken in the least. That was a sign of their ripeness. God says, when this destruction comes, Nineveh's fortresses will be fully ripe for the harvest, making this fruit gathering very easy. The walls and fortifications will fall with seeming ease makes me think that God has as much to do with this supernaturally as the armies do naturally. Think violent rains and floods. Those are acts of God, right? 
If shaken, these fortresses, these walls, fall into the mouth of the eater. This is easier than we thought it would be, these armies say. And your army? Oh, behold your troops. They're women in your midst. Ladies are like, what the heck? What's that? It's not an insult to ladies. It's an indictment on the men of the army. They turn from defenders to those who want defended. Women and children first. No, no, say these armies. Let me out of here. Forget those who I pledge to defend. The troops become self-preservers, not protectors. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Again, elemental. God wrought disaster here. The flood had destroyed their gate, and now that gate there to keep invaders out is gone, and it's keeping nobody out. It is open wide to their enemies, and they are pouring in. And the resulting devastation is evidenced by the fire set by this army that has let itself in. And those fires are as, if not more, destructive than the floods that destroyed the gate. Nineveh is defenseless and burning. That's what God thinks of evil. So what are the Ninevites to do? They better rouse themselves. Drink water for the, uh, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. When a city is being attacked, especially in a long, drawn-out siege-type situation, like happened in those times, one of the greatest needs for the city is what? we got to have clean water. No water in a siege, everybody dies. If you go to 2 Chronicles 32, which we won't this morning... You see that Hezekiah, then king of Judah, had rerouted the waters of the Gihon Springs and brought that water into the city to withstand the coming attack of the Assyrians, which was a genius move because they had unlimited clean water for this siege that lasted years and years and years. And actually, you can do some research on Hezekiah's tunnel. It's still a major tourist attraction in Jerusalem. It was genius. Water was a high, if not the highest priority of an invaded land. And here, God mocks the Ninevites, calling them to fruitless action. Draw water. Sure, go ahead. Oh, and while you're at it, strengthen your forts. Get clay, mortar, and mold some bricks. The Bible Knowledge Commentary gives clarity here. Quote, When the army would tear off some of the bricks of the city's wall, as the Assyrians often did, the city under attack would need to repair those weakened places in the walls with new bricks and mortar. In Nehemiah 3.19, the past tense of the Hebrew word here translated strengthen is rendered repaired. Nineveh's ruins included traces of a counter wall built by the inhabitants to defend the city near places where the enemy had broken down some of the city's defenses. End of quote. So God's like, go ahead, make bricks, try to repair the wall. Even while you're doing that, make all the bricks you want. It's there while you're making the bricks that the fire and the sword will cut you off. Your bricks aren't going to stop what I'm doing here. And then note here and following in the next few verses, the references to locusts and grasshoppers. Multiply, the, multiply like grasshoppers, like locusts, he says. There could be billions of them and it wouldn't be enough to hinder God's work here. And contrast that grasshopper with them being compared to lions in the previous chapter. They've gone from being lions now to being grasshoppers. How does that reflect their pride for which they're being judged? And that locust grasshopper vein of thought continues in verses 16 and 17. You increased your merchants 
More than the stars of heavens, the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. So the leaders, hoping to save themselves, run away. Merchants and consumers had flocked to Nineveh to buy and sell. They were the power. They were the place to be. More than the stars of the heavens, these merchants and consumers had come. Well, when this attack wipes Nineveh off the face of the earth, those same hordes of merchants spread their wings and fly away like locusts departing. And again, not only the merchants, your princes and your scribes, your leaders and your lawmakers all see this. And what do they do? Do they do what's good for the people? No, they fly away. The Bible knowledge commentary, again, gives some clarity here. Listen to this. This is neat. In the cool of the evening, locusts would settle on walls, but when the warmth of the sun came in the morning, they would fly away. Similarly, in panic, the guards and the leaders on the walls would also suddenly vanish. Like locusts, end of quote. You might say that they scurry off like roaches when the lights come on. Either way, this coming destruction will scare off the leaders, the merchants, and they'll all fly away before the morning comes, running for their lives in the dark of night. Where are the leaders? Nobody knows where they are. They took off and left without letting anyone know when they left or where they were going because they were trying to save themselves. They know the gig is up, and they don't want to be around to share in the suffering. Our fearless leaders have led themselves away, abandoning us to suffer and die at the hands of this invading army. Verse 18 elaborates on this too. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. The leaders of Nineveh will be powerless to help their people in the midst of this onslaught. Sleeping shepherds lose sheep to predators. So goes Nineveh. The nobles of Assyria slumber, giving no support or help to the king as he burns himself alive. And so the people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Like sheep without a shepherd, aimlessly wandering on a hillside, easy prey for the wolves and the jackals and the lions that roam the savage lands. Scattered sheep with no shepherd are basically snacks with a very limited future. So will the Ninevites be when this time comes. And then we see in our last verse the end of all this mayhem. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. End of the book, by the way. Period. Question mark. This upcoming invasion will lead to not just pain and harm, there's no easing your hurt. The doctor says there's nothing we can do. Your wound is grievous. This is the end game. This is suffering to the point of total death. The hurt will not be ended or healed. The wound is grievous, meaning it's a wound that will never be healed. It's a gaping, open wound that brings devastation. All being said, Nineveh is torn apart and left bleeding to death, wallowing in its own blood, never to get up again. Sounds awful, doesn't it? So what's the reaction to this terrible, awful, horrific scene? All who hear the news about you, 
salvation. Yes! They're gone! It's victory in Nineveh day. And the streets are lined with people celebrating, shouting, clapping, rejoicing. It's over. It's over. They're gone. The destruction of Nineveh, the brutal end of the brutal city, is wonderful news. There's no mourning. There's only celebration. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Can you grasp that? Hitler's dead. Japan has surrendered. The war is over. The boys are coming home. And those events had carnage leading up to them that we can't imagine. And while there was mourning for all the loss, the joy of the victory is immense and overwhelming. Well, for Nineveh, the only mourners are those who survived the siege and were led into captivity. Nobody else is mourning. Everybody else is celebrating. The nations who were delivered from their grip rejoice over the work of God and the destruction of the bloody city. Why? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The pervasive nature of the evil of the Assyrian Empire had touched the known world. The evil of Nineveh was unceasing. It never not was. And all who felt the effects of it, the fear, the dread, the pain, the suffering, the death, the sieges, the attacks, all those who had felt those things celebrate the end of this oppression. The final point of the oracle speaks of the truth of their unceasing evil. We are not to feel sorry for this monster. Its destruction is good news and is the work of the jealous, holy, good God. Who wouldn't clap and celebrate the destruction of unceasing evil? And that's how the book ends. We had to make Marion rejoice. The unceasing evil has come to an end. And there's the book of Nahum. See y'all later. Okay, yeah, we, we've got we to work on application. We got bonus application points this morning. There's five of them. Oh, I'm in good shape time-wise. Y'all in trouble. <clears throat> five R's. And some of these are little tricky words, so I'll... I'll to, revulsion. R-E-V-U-L-S-I-O-N. Revulsion. Number two is reversal. Revulsion, reversal. Rejoicing. Revulsion, reversal, rejoicing. Resounding. That's re-sound-ing. Revulsion, reversal, rejoicing, resounding, and finally, repentance. Revulsion, reversal, rejoicing, resounding, and repentance. 
Now, let's attack these things. Application. The first R is revulsion. Listen to me, church. We are to hate evil in every form. We don't say hate in our house. We'll start saying it. We hate evil. Why do we hate evil? Because God hates evil. Look at this, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Psalm 97.10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Love your enemies. Hate evil. And that sounds a whole lot like hate the sin and love the sinner, doesn't it? Everybody's like, that, that's not good. That's not, I think it's right. Let's start with hating evil. Okay? Jerry Bridges said, I can know if I truly fear God by determining if I have a genuine hatred of evil and an earnest desire to obey His commandments. I can't do God's commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit if I don't hate doing what's evil. The Christian life is one of a reversal, a changing of our affections. What I used to love, I hate, and what I used to hate, I love. And God hates evil. We are commanded to hate evil. Anybody got sin in their lives? I do. A couple of us, good. The rest of you holy people, fantastic for you. Hate that evil. Hate it. Paul says in Romans 7, the very thing I don't want to do is the thing I'm doing. I'm doing the very thing I hate. And therefore, if, if, if I'm doing the thing I hate, it's no longer I who's doing it, but it's the sin that lives in me. Hate that sin. Hate it. Despise it. Being a Christian means hating what God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates these things. So should we. And you say, well, that doesn't mention this. Feet that make haste to run to evil encompasses a whole lot of stuff. You hear that a lot out there in the culture. Well, the Bible never really talks about this. Uh, Yes, it does. I promise you it does. Well, Jesus never mentions it. Father, Son, Spirit, one God, three persons. If it was an abomination to this one, it's an abomination to this one. One God, three persons. Don't buy the lies of the culture. Hate evil. Do you hate evil? Do you hate injustice? Do you hate the killing of innocence? Do you hate racism? Do you hate the twisting of God's words? Do you hate pride? Because you should. And so should I, because God does.
And that list is not exhaustive. But hating evil is exhaustive. It covers it all. Even my own sin. We are to hate it. Hate it with violent passion. Like what we saw today. Revulsion. Reversal. Here's the promises that we have. There's a lot of them, but... The evil of evil men will reverse course and come back on those who committed it. Period. Psalm 1, 4 to 6. The wicked are not so. They're not like the, the righteous who are like trees of water, trained, uh, trees planted by rivers of water. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Wicked people who do wicked things will have that wickedness turned back upon themselves. Revelation 18, 1 to 8. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice. I won't do it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, hate evil, lest you share in her, in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. All the evils of the whore turn back upon her. The evil of evil men reverses back upon them. That's going to happen. The application for us is know that. Know that. God's going to do that. We don't have to purge the world of evil. We purge ourselves of evil and leave the rest to God. He's going to do a much better job of it than you ever could anyway. Let him reverse that evil upon their heads. Revulsion. Reversal. Third point is rejoicing. Listen to me. Evil will be destroyed. Finally and fully. And that is worth rejoicing over. If you can read this and not get excited, something ain't right. 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, here comes the rejoicing part. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, again I won't do it, from the throne saying, Behold, behold, stop, pay attention, focus on this, behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now is that good news? That is the best news in the universe. That's the best news in all of eternity. One day, to quote Tolkien and Lewis, everything sad will become untrue. And that's wonderful news. And we're going to rejoice way more than VE or VJ Day for eternity because our God has triumphed and in His triumph He has destroyed evil completely. He has destroyed evil completely. And we will rejoice over the just wrath of God being poured out upon those in hell. You're not going to look and say, oh, those poor people. You're going to say, just are you, O God. And just are your ways, O King of ages. And you're going to worship Him for His goodness and for His wrath, which is good. Because that wrath destroys evil and he is jealous for his people to the point that he will obliterate evil completely so that he can wipe away every tear no more mourning no more crying no more pain no more death for the former things have passed away and we say thank you and know that God will do that I don't have to So, revulsion, reversal, rejoicing, what's our role then? Resounding, resounding. The judgment of God is going to fall upon the sons of disobedience. Evil is going to be destroyed. Now, we do not hate evil people. We want them to escape the wrath that is to come, just like we escaped the wrath that is to come. So what do we do? We preach the gospel. Resounding, 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 resounding. Our march, the beat that we march to is the gospel. And you know what that gospel says? That gospel says that we're all evil. Every single one of us. 
you, me, Hitler, Billy Graham, we're all evil. And the just wrath of God is set upon us from our birth. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are evil and God is holy. And without some form of reconciliation, we all will stand beneath the wrath of God. Sin and evil will be judged. And that's bad news. Terrible news. And if that was the end of the story, oh woe is us, eat and drink for tomorrow we die and we spend eternity in hell. But God made a way. God made a way. He sent Christ, God in the flesh, God the Son, to come and be born of a virgin and live a perfect life. You say, oh, you talk about this all the time. Yes, I do. And so should you. Jesus lived a perfect life. Then they placed Him on a cross and they lifted Him up and He absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of His people. The same wrath that was poured out on Nineveh. Listen, church, was poured out on Jesus for your sins. Exposed, skirts on his face, scorn, mocking, ridicule, filth hurled at him for your sins. And Jesus didn't reflect that wrath, he absorbed that wrath. So that we could come to him, flee into him. And say, your body was broken and your blood was poured out for the remission of my sins. And I believe that the wrath of God was justly, perfectly satisfied when he poured that wrath out on Christ for my sins. So therefore, my faith that I have received as a gift of grace from God himself is in the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. That's the message that we take to evil people. Flee from the wrath to come. Run into Christ and find shelter there. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Safe from what? Safe from the wrath of God. And there is no other escape from the wrath of God. It will be total. It will be complete. It will be horrific. And all will rejoice at the sound of it and the sight of it. And those who are in Christ, who have believed the gospel that is preached and proclaimed through the scripture and through the people of God, will be safe. Christ, our hope in life and death. That's resounding. Revulsion, reversal, rejoicing, resounding, and finally, repenting. Believers and unbelievers. The call here is to change the way you think about evil. Don't nurture it. Don't apologize for it. Don't feel sorry for it. Don't nurse it like something that's down here that you, oh, I'd really like to hold on to this. Evil is evil. Sin is sin. And it brings death and destruction. And we have to, as Christians, change the way we think about evil. We should not entertain ourselves with evil. That's convicting to me. We should not shake hands with the world and say, it's okay. 
It's not okay. Evil is evil, and we should abscond from all forms of evil. All forms of evil. And if you're not a believer, you need to see evil for what it is, and it's your ticket to a front row seat of the wrath of God. And you need to repent of it. You need to change the way you think about it. Turn away from it. Run from it. Run into Christ. Evil is evil and God will justly and totally and viciously destroy it all. And for those who aren't in Christ, what we read today is your ultimate end. Repent and believe the gospel. Run into the strong tower that is Christ and be safe who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Let's pray. Just and true are your ways, O King of Ages. The wrath that you have poured out and that you will pour out is completely just and is a sign of your jealous love for your glory and for your people. Woe to the bloody city because the wrath of God is coming. God, may we as as your people act as the ambassadors that you have appointed us to be and may we beg people, plead with people to flee from the wrath to come. May we repent of our evil and may we proclaim the glorious gospel that provides a way of escape from the wrath that is coming upon that evil. May we rejoice at your ways and your works, God. We have no need to apologize for you or to defend you for what you do because your ways are just and true. They are perfect, they are holy, and they are good. And may we entrust the reversal of the evil of evil men to your hands that you'll turn it back on them in a just and jealous way. God, may we be revulsed at all forms of evil so that you get glory in our lives and so that we show you to be who you are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. God, you are good. You cannot do or be evil and everything you do is just. And we celebrate you and your wrath and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can. Just not in the teen room.